Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello and welcome again to Genius at Scale. Today we have the co-founders of Umaker, Abbas and Remy. Gentlemen, introduce yourself. Tell us a little about your company. So Umaker um, at its core is a website which helps students uh, with their upcoming exams. And we leverage upon artificial intelligence uh, to do so. So we've been around actually since, well, actually, bloody hell, um, we've been around since 2017. So this is year six of, uh, of the business. So Rami and I are, uh, are, uh, are seasoned veterans, I would say. Um, and um, yeah, it's been a wild ride. And uh, here we are, you know, 100,000 users later. Um, we just finished our pre-seed round. And uh, yeah, no, very excited as to the journey ahead, God willing. So how did you get, it's interesting, you, uh, I know your history a little bit. How did you get six years in? How did you find yourself in the tutoring space? Because you didn't start there, as I understand. I don't know how we ended up in this space. Honestly, it's a mystery to me. It's basically <laughs> so. How can I how can I explain it in a nutshell? Uh, so Rami and I, we've known each other for years. I mean, he and I go way back, and we always wanted to do a business together. And then basically, um, I was like kind of angel investing, and he came up with a brilliant idea, um, and it was basically an inventions platform. It was basically a a website that connected. Uh, inventors with experts like electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and 3D printing experts. Um, and the thinking behind Umaker 1.0 was that we could democratize kind of like inventions. We could uh, facilitate a better way in which to get inventions off the ground in a cheaper and a quicker way. Because Rami himself is, a, is an inventor and he went through hell getting his invention off the ground. Um, and so we launched kind of Umaker as a means by which to kind of like help the invention process. And, um, yeah, we, 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 we incorporated in 2017. I think we started tinkering with it, like, and probably launched in 2018. We did one round of funding in 2019 and then we miserably failed <laughs> in 2019 and 2020. And we were just experimenting and experimenting and just banging our head against the wall and getting no traction and just testing and testing and testing. Um, and throughout the whole process, we were just asking, like, whichever user we could get, like, what do you want? How can we help you? What problem do you have? And how can we solve it? Um, in that kind of like desperate search for like product market fit. Um, and that's what Rami has been kind of like hammering into me from like day one. He's like, forget all the noise, just speak to the users and we'll give them what they want. Um, and then what ended up happening rather inadvertently, we, we ended up attracting a lot of final year engineering students from like South Asia, from like Pakistan and India. And they were coming onto Umaker saying, look, we're okay with the kind of mechanics um, and inventions, but we are absolutely struggling with writing. And then Rami being the genius that he is, he was like, interesting. And so he was like, maybe we can help them with their writing. And he kind of thought maybe we can get like experts and tutors onto the platform. And then he kind of like started experimenting with like artificial intelligence. This is like years ago, um, way before like chat GPT. Um, and, uh, we built like when, when I say we, he built, uh, this algorithm, I was just there in the background, just kind of giving him a thumbs up. So rooting him on. I want to interrupt just for a sec. So what I'm yeah. catching here then is. Rami, you're the brains and Abbas is, he's the brawn. 
He's the muscle in the, the organization. Beauty. I'm the beauty, and he's the, the, oh, the he's brains the behind all this. Got it. I want to make sure I have that. I'm not sure about the beauty part. Yeah, okay. I, I think the beauty part should be my call too. <laughs> I, I was wondering if he was if he was the brawn. How did you guys get there too? But okay, you're worried about the beauty. I'm worried about the brawn. Okay, good. Just checking. You know the the, the history of Ubaker. I'd like to describe it like you know the game of telephones. Yeah. Telephone game. Yeah, it's like you, yeah. you whisper into the ear of someone, and then you whisper into the ear of someone. And then by the time you get to the next person, it's something completely different from where, where it started, you know, how that sentence started. It's essentially you, Maker. We started with a concept, came out the other end with something completely different. We wouldn't, in our wildest imagination, imagine that we would end up doing what we're doing today. So now it's been quite a journey. So it's, it's interesting. I, I want to dig into the product a little bit because there is this concern or it's a new conversation about artificial intelligence essentially equaling copying or doing the work for the students but you're not doing that you're just you're just preparing them better than they could do without your product i think um the way in which we look at it is 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 akin to this like when we first started with umaker when remy kind of got got the idea of this new algorithm and we launched it and we had immediate success and then we started speaking to other stakeholders, not necessarily yep. users, but we went to like some investors. And back then, this would be around 2021, um, kind of 2022. Um, that's the type of question mark we got. Like, what about the underlying ethics of this? Is this cheating? Um, you know, uh, you know, you're taking out the kind of work and the underlying effort from the academic process. And there was a tremendous level of uh, pushback, I would argue, or even go so far as to say there was a lot of criticism of Umaker back then. Um, but I think Rami and I, you know, we, we, we stood, we stood fast. We, we knew that this technology had a lot of traction and a, a lot of, um, viability. Um, and we just, we imagined a world where AI would integrate itself, not just within the classroom, but within the workspace. Uh, even within the home. And um, I think at the tail end of 2022, ChatGPT was released. And suddenly, all of the critique the, and the, the, the pushbacks that we were getting, specifics to the underlying ethics, um, just diluted overnight. Nobody cared then, because I think then the, the penny dropped and people realized that actually this type of technology is going to be ubiquitous with academia. Um, and so I think that's point number, point number one, point number two is that if you look at the kind of history of like technology, so, you know, imagine when, for example, the calculator came out, you know, there was a lot of pushback then, and then suddenly the calculator became the standard practice within, within the classroom. Um, and, you know, back in the day, like Rami and I, we went to school and I would argue, John, perhaps, you know, you got, you went to school like in, in an era pre-internet, um, and like, you know, you'd go, you'd get a reading list, you'd go to the library, you'd get the books, you'd start reading. And then you, you know, for different assignments, you'd build accordingly. Um, and then the internet happened. And again, a lot of pushback, um, on the technology and it, and it diluting the, uh, the learning process. And I think the same happened with, uh, with AI. And then eventually it will just become, as I say, the standard practice within the, within the classroom. So we very much see it got you know, further integrating itself into the, into the learning system. It's interesting that the, 
the idea that it's rip, um, cheating or or diluting the educational process, is it fair to say that it actually improves curiosity, almost like the internet did, because now you could explore something where you go, I'm never gonna even find this stuff in the library, but if I, if I Google something and it gives me 50 uh, search things coming back, I might explore something that I would have otherwise never seen. I, I could have never done that in a library world or a pre-internet world. Is it is it fair to say that you're in the preparing or the tutoring of the students that they're actually getting a better education because it's more thorough as opposed to minimum standard? If, if, if I'm struggling in math, the tendency is to say, how little can I do because I don't like it, I don't understand it, and it's, and, and it's difficult, I try to get by, is it is it fair to say that you actually give a more robust experience because you're you're leading them to areas that they wouldn't otherwise go? So yeah, no, uh, you hit the nail on the head there, John. Because further to the calculator example that uh, Abbas touched on, you know, when calculators, these little handheld calculators, were made available to everybody back in the seventies, at that time you had school teachers on the streets carrying signs protesting that the calculator is dumbing down our kids. But as that concept became standard, what teachers realized is those kids are now able to do far more advanced mathematics. They're able to handle problems and think about solutions rather than being caught up with the mental arithmetic, which they should learn, but they're now exercising logical thinking alongside the calculator that enables them to solve far more complex problems. Right. And this is what's happening with AI now. Yes, it may not be, it may speed up the writing element of things, but actually the brainstorming element, the back and forth interaction with the AI that can spark new ideas that you otherwise would never have thought of, that's that's progress. That gets the student to evolve in ways that they couldn't evolve before. Yeah, I, 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 I've got seven kids and all of them had to do science projects. That was a rite of passage is every year through about grade eight, you had to do a science project. And a second grade, a grade two or a second grade kid would do, they'd cut the celery and put it in two different colors of food coloring and show how it goes. But they got to the point where they wanted to do science and I couldn't help them at all. They'd say, can you help me with my science project? There was no way I could help them. I didn't have the, I, it wasn't the capacity, I didn't have the capability to help them with the theory they were working on. Could this, and this is the sort of thing that, that could rep, not replace, but could augment a parent who doesn't have that kind of um, capacity? I, I'm going through it myself now. Um, so my daughter is doing GCSE, which is the equivalent of, I don't know what it's equivalent to in the US, but it's a standardized uh, exam that they have to go through. Um, and she was asking me about chemistry. I'm, I'm really bad with chemistry. I mean, I consider myself a scientist. That's my background, but not chemistry. That's like the worst subject. And she was asking me about different molecules and I just couldn't answer her. Um, guess what? I pulled up an AI 
tutor, put the question in there, jogged my memory a little bit, and took all the credit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So obviously you're early in your scaling journey. How do you now measure scale? Because I imagine that may change, may have changed from where you started in 2017. How do you capture or measure scale or count it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question um, because it's entirely arbitrary. It's, it's entirely, you know, subjective. Um, and I don't think there are specific yardsticks um, dependent upon, for example, the industry or the underlying technology. I would argue that one measure that Rami and I take into consideration is what we perceive to be the underlying quote unquote metrics um, that we think venture capitalists would, would require. And so um, in terms of that particular journey, we, we look at what we think VCs will look for at our next round of funding, and then we see where we are on, on, on that journey, on that trajectory. And that's one way of, I think, measuring um, that kind of progress and, and, and that scaling. I think over and above that, it's just, I think, the, the number of users and um, just the, the, the reach that we're getting with the, uh, with the technology. Um, and I think that also provides us with um, a, a measurement as to how big, that, uh, how big the company is getting. And this is, this is a freemium and, and then paid subscription model or still, still uh, free, free to everyone? So we started as a framing model, and um, as we did all the pivots, we're moving more towards a free trial kind of model, uh, where you use it for a certain period of time and then obviously uh, get to pay. But can I just kind of circle back to, to your question about scale and how we define it? For me personally, I think a way to measure scale is when you reach a point to where you can amplify your output significantly without additional resources or not adding resources at the same rate, where you can right. scale much quicker than the resources you have to put behind it. Um, the way I would consider what a scalable business is, I mean, we all have ideas as to what a business, how a business can be scalable. If I think of a tech company versus a barber shop, You'd agree with me that a tech company is more scalable, but why is that? Well, the reason for that is because not, it's not because it's impossible to scale a barbershop business. Theoretically, it is possible. You can set up franchises, you can roll it out across the country, but it requires so much resources and it's incredibly difficult to do. Theoretically, it's possible, but it's not inherent in the business model that it scales easily. Um, whereas a scalable business is one that actually scales inherently without you having to continuously pushing it and putting more resources to, to get it right. um, to snowball. Right. It makes, a lot, it makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine that, uh, well, I ask, is, it, is, it, um, is your growth organic or is it or is a combination, which is more effective, um, uh, paid ads or or marketing spend, or word of mouth? We actually, with 
achieved 100,000 users without spending a single penny on marketing so far. And yeah. it's, no, it's great. mainly based on delighting the customer to the point that they go, holy crap, I need to share this with all my student friends because they're going to love this. And that's really the, the foundation for our marketing plan is to delight them with something that they've never seen before. You know, once they click that write more button or they click that generate button or having a question around an exam and they answer it correctly or a tutor gives them some piece of insight, it's an adrenaline rush and they just get hooked into it. Um, and that's the effect we're trying to capture, which then lends to that virality. So the, the podcast is all about the entrepreneur's journey and the scaling journey. It's great when people get to the top of the mountain and you guys are on your way up the mountain, which is, which is good. You start in 2017. Obviously, it's been a little bit of a bumpy road to get to where you're at now. What's the biggest pitfall, uh, roadblock, uh, pothole that you've hit? And what did you learn from it? Like, how did it help you where you are today, even at the time when it looked like, oh, this is a disaster? Wow. That's a good question. Um, given, given our different roles, um, I imagine like Rami's, um, I think biggest lesson and his biggest roadblock is going to be much different to mine. Um, I think as, as head of fundraising and as, um, you know, someone tasked to kind of get the money in ultimately, I mean, that's, that's the biggest reason why businesses or at least tech startups run into difficulty. It's because they just, they just run out of money. And so, um, you know, I promised Rami from the outset when we started this, I was like, you don't have to worry about the money. I'll get the money. Um, somehow, some way I'll, um, you know, I came, I came about this close to handing out sexual favors. I mean, put it that way. That's, that's how committed I was <laughs> to the, to the process. Yeah. Um, um, how did that work though? You found that was a bad strategy. <laughs> well, handing out sex. I didn't actually. No, basically, I think, um, like, look, when in 2021, you know, credit was cheap, liquidity, liquidity was plentiful, confidence was high, and, you know, you could raise very quickly. Um, whereas in 2022, the market changed, you know, and um, there was revaluations, you know, there was a lot of tech layoffs, confidence starting to wane, um, and, um, you know, VCs started to change their, their approach. Um, and as a general rule, and I think that's continuing now into 2023, the investment process with a high net worth, an angel, an angel consortium, a VC, in my experience, takes twice as long um, and simultaneously results in half as much money relative yeah, it's, it's to... In my experience, it's twice, yeah. twice as much effort and, and half, and half as much payoff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that for me was probably the, the biggest challenge. Um, and what was the learning process? I think from that, um, I think there's a number of lessons. The first is I, I'd leverage off the words of, of Mark Andreessen. Mark Andreessen said in a, in a very famous interview that when you're learning about startups theoretically, and when you're actually doing it, you kind of anticipate you know, the product, the market, the team, um, and all that good stuff that they teach you. Um, but what nobody prepares you for is the emotional roller coaster you go on as a startup founder. Um, it is, you get pulled in a million different directions and it 
in the, and most of the time it's you're in a dark place without a map you know trying to find your way you know you're lost at sea without you know a lighthouse in sight and i think um one of the lessons i'm i'm starting to learn um is just to try and keep an even keel some semblance of like temperament that when it's good like right now we've just finished the round we're getting all this press um there's a lot of traction a lot of buzz around you maker you know to not get too carried away and just to kind of keep your feet on the ground and simultaneously yeah. and you know the market's tough and you know you have to kind of keep grinding away um again it's not the end of the world don't get too despondent don't get too down but try and maintain a a, a a sense of temperament and enthusiasm simultaneously um and that's ultimately the process because if you get taken on those emotional swings you'll 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 lose yourself i think in 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 the journey and and that's been you know i've learned that the hard way um but i think that's one one lesson to 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 just you know when it's bad it's not as bad as you think it is and um when it's great it's it's not as great as you think it is um so i think that's certainly one lesson um i think second lesson is that we live in a world john where there's such huge high levels of like expectation you know there's there's and you know from 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 uh, from vcs and from other investors from your suppliers um and from your customers maybe to some extent even from your employees um and the, the number of stakeholders that are looking at you and your business wanting you to progress and there may be a tendency and i think i've suffered from this to kind of like rush and just you know push and sometimes force it a little bit but sometimes um and there's a very famous chinese proverb which says sometimes when there's no clear option the best thing to do is maybe to do nothing um and actually you know there's this kind of impatience around a startup but sometimes you can just you know take 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 the foot off the gas and it's not the end of the world and um I think that's also a lesson that I've uh, I've learned and I would I mean for any founders that's that's watching this pod- podcast I would I would advocate for that to sometimes just take a little bit of a breath and sometimes it'll it'll work itself out. Who's uh, who's the toughest stakeholders? Cuz I I I work with founders and CEOs and I, and by my count you have 6 or 7 depending on how you count. Who's the toughest? I think um I mean, Remy will speak to this as well. Um, I think we live in a world where you are able to overcome the funding obstacle. I think if you go through the process and you remain committed, um, there's there's a way in which to do so. Um, and you may not kind of roar over the finish line, but I think the investment landscape, whilst challenging, is is um, achievable, so to speak. Um, I think. Um, getting the right employees. I mean, like these are other stakeholders, which are also quite demanding. Um, I think if you can find them, go through a good interview process, you know, yep. get them into an environment where they can showcase their potential and God willing, even exceed it. I think that's an achievable milestone as well. Demanding, but yep. achievable. But the, the hardest is giving the consumer a product or a service, which ultimately benefits them and solves their problem. And that, is you have to be meticulous and absolutely dogged because you have to distance yourself from your opinion from the market from like other people's opinion and you have to go straight to the the user and ask them what is your problem and how can i solve it and you have to be religious in that process 
it may not be the problem that you want to solve, but it's the problem that they have. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think the, the user is ultimately the, the most demanding stakeholder but, and is oftentimes the quietest. Ah, uh, that's interesting. So that, that's, that's difficult to read then. Oh, very much so. Like if, uh, if you're speaking to a, an investor, you know, they can be quite vocal and they, they're not shy in telling you their opinion and nor should they, because ultimately it's their money. Um, right. And we're tasked um, with the very privileged position on, on returning on that money. Um, but sometimes extracting feedback um, from the user, um, you know, because oftentimes the answer is okay. And you have to scratch beneath the surface, dig a little bit deeper and go down that kind of rabbit hole. And so you have to do that because they're not going to give it to you that you have to go through that kind of introspection process with them. And then something reveals itself mm. like this, this underlying issue. And from there you have your truth. And from there you have your product. I've learned from the many users that I've uh, interviewed and spoken to about their problems is, um, never take the solution they propose, listen to their problem, but not the solution. You know, uh, I remember it was Henry Ford and they asked him like, you know, he, he was saying, if I listened to my customer's solution, they would say, get me a faster horse. Um, he, he knew their problem. He knew their problem. He, he knew the problem is they're not getting there fast enough, but he wouldn't take the solution. He came up with his own innovative solution. And I think that's one thing that I've learned right. over time is I should only listen to the problem from the user, but then the solution, I have to come up with something. That's, that's my job. I have to come up with a solution that they have never thought of and then delight them with it. That's very difficult. Like you, you really need to think really hard you need to be empathetic with the user, like really put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the pain points they're going through and let your imagination run wild as to how that, that can be solved efficiently. So you have to be a mind reader too, not just a product designer or a product manager. And so that's, that's quite hard. But we have a, a cheat code. Cheat code is you can't talk to users. You, you, you don't need just to read their minds. You can actually ask them and... and uh, figure it out that way. Sure. So, so that's helpful. Um, but I think the one thing that I um, learned, especially in the early days, when we first started UMaker, um, I knew that the one thing that kills the company, like the, the thing that is, that most commonly kills companies is the founders giving up. But I didn't understand exactly what that meant. I thought giving up on the company is the same thing as giving up on the vision and giving up on the idea. That, that's not the case. These are two different things. You are meant to give up on your idea if it doesn't work. Don't give up on the company, don't give up on the business, don't give up on the team, but give up on the idea and move to where the user wants to take you, even if it means pivoting and changing the idea and discarding of your entire big vision, which you feel so passionately about. That's fine. Get rid of all of that, but carry on with the business. And I think when I understood the difference between these two, that's when I thought, okay, now I get it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm very curious because your co-founders question for both of you. And then individually, is there an ideal risk profile for founders or entrepreneurs? And then 
I'm curious whether one of you can be way high on risk profile and the other one can be less conservative and how you work through that. Or do you have to match your risk profiles to be co-founders? I think, um, wow, risk profiles of founders. That's such a great question, John. I've never actually even considered it. Like our journey and, you know, who I am and who Rami is and how we approach risk. Um, I would say in my life up until now, I've been very risk seeking, you know, I don't like to play it safe. Yep. Um, and I, and that, that's across my, my, my life, not just in terms of my entrepreneurial life, but, um, in my, in my professional life, in my academic life, dare I say it in my romantic life in my, in my investment life, whatever. Um, I've always, you know, uh, I think treaded on the edge. Um, and sometimes that teeters through into you maker and, um, you know, Rami and I were having a conversation literally 48 hours ago, just with regards to, you know, spending of certain money on a particular project. And I'm like, let's go. This is it. We're going to go for it. It's going to be amazing. And, you know, I get all emotional. Um, and then Rami's like, hold on a minute. Why don't we think about it from another perspective and let's, uh, let's just turn down the volume. Um, and I need him to, to sometimes to settle me. Now, I'm not sure if that's indicative of emotion, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm not as cognizant of the, um, the risk exposure as, as he is. And so further to your question, I think it, it's important for one part of the duo to be a little bit more, we can do it and let's just go for it. And then the other part to say, actually, let's calm down. If, if both are too safe, I think that's problematic for the business. And I think if both are too ambitious and um, got kind of gun ho, I think that also can be a, uh, a problem for the, uh, for the business. It's important for there to be a bit of a, um, a bit of a, uh, like a, a harmony ones, at one end and the other ones at the other end. And the irony of what I'm saying, and it's just hitting me in the head right now, is that I, I actually come from a risk management background. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an inch. The reason I ask the question is people, people think, for instance, that a 10 risk profile is ideal for a startup CEO. And the problem with a 10, and I know because I'm an 11, is it's not that you like more risk is when you get to nine or 10, you simply don't see risk. You see opportunity only and you don't see risk. And it's dangerous if you don't have somebody, uh, it took me three companies to figure out I needed a second in command who could say, pump the brakes. And they were, uh, they were what I would call uh, pragmatists. They, they, would, they would bring things to practical, pragmatic, because I couldn't see the risks of going uh, of doubling down or going too fast or spending too much money. I, I, my theory was, if we run out of money, we'll get more money. Well, maybe, um, <laughs> maybe not. It's not that more risk is better or worse. I, I'm, I'm curious, is there an ideal risk profile for partners or co-founders? Co I think it's hard to assess your own risk profile. It so, is. First of all, I would say 
it's a myth that entrepreneurs love risk. Entrepreneurs don't like risk. Nobody likes risk. In fact, they spend a lot of their money, a lot of their time and money mitigating risk and, uh, and, and hedging for it and, and putting in systems in place to make sure that things don't go wrong. Um, but what I, what I think what we're talking about is there are certain attitudes towards uh, what risk even is. Like, like you said, it might be that your risk profile is up here, but you don't even see it. You don't even consider it to be something threatening. Um, and you need someone to highlight maybe that, hey, there are, there are issues here because you're so hyper-focused on the opportunity and the outcome should this work out that you forget about, um, uh, about the other danger, dangers if it goes wrong. Now, um, it reminds me of how I play chess. You know, sometimes when I have a chess board in front of me, I think like eight, nine, ten steps ahead, and I get so immersed in my own plan, or my own grand scheme, that I, that I start to forget about what the other person is doing. And before I know it, I'm like, checkmate. <laughs> it's like, what just happened? I was so immersed in my own plan that I just forget to calculate everything else that is going around. So I think there are different attitudes. It's not like we love risk, but we have different approaches to how we deal with it. Along that line, is it possible to scale a company if the founders aren't scaling themselves? Like, I mean, growing yourselves. <laughs> I wasn't expecting these questions, man. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's, it, 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 oh my goodness. Like, if you look at, if I were to look at myself at the beginning of this journey and I were to look at myself now, it's two completely different people. Um, you know, Rami oftentimes says to me, like, there is no postgraduates course, whether it's the MBA or the CFA or the ACA or whatever that will teach you what a startup teaches you. No way. Um, There's nothing else like it. No. Nothing else out there that comes even close. Um, and so I would, um, I would say that over the, the years that we've been doing this, there's been a tremendous kind of like personal scaling in terms of our, um, our knowledge, our experience, dare I say it, perhaps even our wisdom. Um, but also even like personal characteristics that go over and above that, just, I would say I'm more patient now than I was when I started this particular process. And I was inherently impatient when I started, but I've learned to, to accept kind of God's will and be like, okay, like this is the process that we're going on. And sometimes it just has to take a little bit longer and, and it happens not necessarily in accordance with your, your plan. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I, I would actually agree with that comment, John, that in order for the business to scale, the, the founders need to, to improve and to, and, and to go on a journey as well. And, and, and I think that's why a lot of like exited founders like echo this, that what they say is, is that it's not the exit. It's not the money that comes at the end. It's the journey that you went on to get to that process. And that's where, where the value is. I, I, I've done several companies myself, and then now I coach founders and CEOs. And what I tend to see is the, it's not a universal rule, but the most successful founders are the ones that realize that 
every uh, small um, inadequacy or flaw or unresolved issue in you is going to get tested simply because you're selling software or barber shop. It doesn't matter. The system is going to do that. And you can go to MBA school and they've got a safer curriculum that never forces you to do that. And when you run out of money, you have to say, what do I stand for in taking care of my family? And you say, this is, this was, oh, well, we ran out of money. Now I, now what do I do to feed my family? That's a, a startup or a scaling journey requires every, every founder to go through that. And you're going to go through it multiple times. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is nothing like it, but I, that's why I asked the question because some people have argued for, and I, I appreciate the argument that you can do it and be safer. Uh, you're not safe, but you can be safer. And my experience is the more, the, the least safe you are in that process, uh, the faster you'll grow because you'll, you'll have to take, you'll have to take on all of the inadequacies or the cracks in order, in order to get to the next, the next level. And the, the problem is you don't, you, you won't know what they are. <laughs> you have no idea what yeah. they are until they show up. And, and you have to be as a founder, like a receptive to feedback. You can't, um, yeah. take it personally. And that's yep. that, I mean, throughout my career, it's been, that's been a big problem. Like somebody gives me something and I'm like, is that a shot? Is really? that a dig? Or, you know, yeah, really? really? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and it requires a level of, um, introspection and humility and yep. startups have a way of kicking the pride out of you. <laughs> oh yes. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. There's absolutely there's nowhere, nowhere to hide. hide. And you know, you have to grind it and you know, there's no room for arrogance or pride or boastfulness. It's just swell. It's just a, you know, uh, at times it can be quite a humiliating, um, endeavor, but you come out the other side, as I say, with that humility, um, and with that personal understanding. Um, and I think that's a good thing. It, 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 it keeps you, uh, it keeps you grounded. But if you go in hardened, not receptive, then yeah, no, I, I don't think, um, and I would argue, actually, there's no point doing it. If you're going to be the same founder you were when you started, what's the point? Yeah, my, my experience is you aren't because now you're a failed founder. You, you can't go in rigid and think, I got this wired. There's just no, yeah, I've not seen it. And maybe it's possible, but uh, yeah, hmm. that's the business school plan where you just say, yeah, we, we just go 30% year on year growth and, and then we go that's public it. five it's years all theoretical later. And go, and yeah. I've never seen it. I, I've just never seen it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last, last question. What do you as an organization or maybe as, because you guys have very different roles, what do you optimize for? Like in your daily or weekly um, work or focus, what do you optimize for? I think um, as it relates to my role, so I do four, four principal jobs. Uh, the first is kind of like investor relations. The second is public relations. The third is customer relations. And the fourth is kind of strategic partnerships and new business development. Um, okay. And what we at Umaker, especially in terms of what I do and what I bring to the table, what we are optimized for is that there is a continuous unending process of new relationships being formed constantly, consistently, 
I'm meeting and talking to, engaging with, and interacting with new people who do different things across the board. Um, and so for us, we are optimized in the sense that we can always leverage upon others as it relates to uh, a particular problem set um, or um, help with a, uh, satisfying a particular strategy. Um, and that's just part of my personality, like just constantly talking and constantly engaging and constantly interacting. Um, and because of that, our networks grow accordingly across hypothetically PR, venture capital, marketing, human resources, or whatever. And that then allows us to um, solve problems because ultimately we leverage upon those networks when, if and when we need to. That's great. Remy, how about you? I think uh, we're good at finding clever solutions on a shoestring budget. We find <laughs> well, it's so bloated that you could call it shoestring. Now I heard it was I heard it was uh, the ghost of shoestring or the skeleton of shoestring. It was, it was like it was a spider's thread. That's how bad it was. <laughs> Rami once described us as cockroaches. He's like a boss. We are cockroaches in terms of like maintaining our working capital cycle. Um, and it's true, man. We really look after money. Um, you have otherwise you can't survive for six years. <laughs> we would have been dead long ago. And I think I think that's. It's a good thing that we were optimized for that from the get-go uh, because it would allow us so much time to really pivot and, and, and figure out everything else we need to figure out. Um, without that element, we would have been dead before um, finding the thing. That's great. That's great. Um, last question. What, uh, what should I have asked you about scale that I didn't? When it comes to scaling, from, from what, from a personal perspective or from a company perspective? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would say, like, if you're a founder listening to this particular podcast, when it comes to, like, fundraising, especially in this environment, there's some key lessons that I've kind of learned with regards to this most recent fundraise. Number one, don't say no ever to any meeting ever um because you could be introduced to x person um and if you go in with a preconceived um idea as to that person or how that meeting will go um you're going to significantly curtail your investment opportunity because sometimes it's from the most obscure no hope type meetings can actually something beautiful emerge um and so i think that's one kind of question like what, what is the kind of like what are the what are the nuances of fundraising what what are you know what are the tricks to it so to speak the first is just to say yes to every meeting carte blanche unending just speak to everybody point one um point two is that there's no fundraising strategy that again you should say no to so not just any one person it's also any one strategy whether it's cold emails um uh, pitch competitions networking events um, leveraging off your LinkedIn or what, and anything and everything in between, say yes, go for it. Um, because you're fighting with people like Rami and I, you know, and it's, you know, you, you have to go above and beyond and give yourself as much scope for opportunity, um, as, uh, as possible. So say yes to every single, uh, medium. So that's, uh, that's, I think point number two, and I think point number three is and i think this is really important and this is a piece of advice that came out of one of the accelerators that we did um it was like try and be sympathetic to the vc that when i heard that 
And I didn't quite understand it, but I really understand it now because you can get rejected and you can take it personally, but you have to realize if you can put, if you can be sympathetic to the VC, you can put your, you can put yourself in their shoes. They see hundreds of opportunities daily. Um, and they have to basically foresee what the market is going to look like, what that team is going to look like, what that product is going to look like in five, seven, 10 years time. They have to be borderline psychic. It's an impossible job. And I think if you can be sympathetic to the process, yeah. your likelihood of achieving success in that process is higher because you're now one degree removed from the emotion of it. You're now a lot more pragmatic about that process and you're more receptive to the feedback that VCs um, give you. And um, yeah. I think that's, a, that's, an, that's an important mindset to have when you, when you go into the process. Premi, how about you? What what uh, what questions should I ask you about scale that I didn't? I think uh, business model might be an, an important area. Um, I think that the piece of insight I can share there from our experience is we discovered there is a difference between a user and a customer. The user isn't always the customer, and so we were so focused on getting users, but not necessarily paying customers. Because we figured out that actually the people that are enjoying our product aren't the people who are meant to pay for it, but there should be something else. And there are multiple ways that can take effect. Like, for example, if you're building toys, you're, you need to sell to the parents, not, not to the kids, even though the kid is the user. Um, students fall into that category. Um, if, you're, if your business model rely on b to b to c for example you need to start thinking about a strategy to appeal to partners who then sell to the user um and so that needs to be factored in as opposed to the end user in particular yeah, that's great it's very very interesting distinction users versus customers so you listen to them differently yeah absolutely and they have different needs yeah. and you need yeah. to be able to play both sides yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, it's very interesting, especially for product market fit. It it makes a huge difference. Massive. Yeah, yeah. massive. Abbas, Remy, thank you so much for appearing on Genius at Scale. Um, for our regular listeners, uh, thank you as well, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.